Spirit Code with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Coming to you once again from Arlington, Texas, today with episode 455 of the Survival Podcast. It is uh, Tuesday, June the 15th, 2010. That means we're halfway through June. And today, what are we going to talk about? We're going to talk about food storage. More specifically, what I consider the holistic approach to survival food storage. I think that there's a lot of people out there that would have a hard time putting a word like holistic uh, and a word like, a word like survivalist together. Uh, they seem to be worlds apart, don't they? Holistic sounds like some kind of airy-fairy, bush-hippie crap, and survivalist sounds like some kind of big, tough, mountain man, you know, he-man type thing, Right? Uh, so we're survivalists, we're tough, we have guns holistic. That's for, you know, all those sweet people that are out there trying to save the world world with energy healing or whatever. Well, to me, the two worlds are actually quite overlapped, even if we don't make a stretch, if we just look at it in general. Holistic healing, for instance, is uh, the idea that we have to look at the entire patient. We have to heal the entire patient, not just the symptom. So if somebody has a rash, instead of just putting a salve or an ointment on the rash, which we may do, we also have to ask, well, what caused the rash? Is it a food allergy? Is it environmental exposure? Is it a poor immune system? Is it a hyperactive immune response? Instead of just treating the symptom the way modern medicine does, let's look at the holistic nature of the illness or discomfort. Now, you want to help somebody after the shit has hit the fan and modern medicine is, avail- is not available, it's the only way that you're able to do it. So, holistics and survivalism are the same world in reality. When we look at it today with food storage, you'll see how that's even more the case. Before we do that, though, we do have to take care of our sponsors with our uh, housekeeping segment. Sponsor of the day number one, silverandgoldshop.com. Check out Silver and Gold Shop. Do that and you will find uh, an amazing collection of silver rounds, a little bit of gold there as well. If you're wondering about Tea Party Silver, that is now silverandgoldshop.com. They changed the name but not the ownership or the service or the product or the delivery. Just wanted to start bringing some gold in and doing some other things. So they thought that, uh, actually I should say she thought, and that would be Mary Beth Maidmont, she thought it would be a better uh, brand for the store overall. I happen to agree. One thing I'll tell you, if you want to buy your silver and or your gold, from someone who's always going to look out for you and make sure you pay the best price you can on any given day, check out Mary Beth. 100% of my feedback on her has been absolutely outstanding. Glad she's a partner of the show. Next up today is ready-made resources in the Lifesaver 4000 water bottle. Um, I'll tell you what, the 4000 water bottle is a pretty amazing product. I also have with me, sitting right here, uh, a Lifesaver 10,000 jerry can. And uh, what's cool about the Lifesaver filtration products is that they filter down to .015 microns, and all of them are available from Bob Griswold over at Ready Made Resources. So check out the Lifesaver products. Uh, being able to filter down to that .015 microns, what does that mean? That means that we can filter out bacteria and viruses and make just about any water out there safe to drink. Uh, with that, I also want to remind you to connect with us, uh, the Survival Podcast, on Twitter, on YouTube, and Facebook. I've really been kind of ramping up things on Facebook. I've been getting a lot of great feedback from you guys on Facebook. I do want to tell you this. I'm no longer accepting friend requests from people that I don't know personally. Uh, I have close to a 1,000 friends on Facebook now, and... Um, it's made interaction difficult at that kind of friend level. The show also has a fan page, and that's where I'm interacting with my fans from this point forward. So if you send me a friend request and we haven't actually you know, met, we don't really know each other, it probably won't be approved because there's a limit on how many friends I can accept. So I, you know, 
I don't want to start turning people down for that reason. So it makes sense to just put the fans into the fan page. And that's where I'm going to do most of my interaction. Now that I get that, now that I get how the fan pages work, I'm stoked. Uh, I love interacting with you guys on Facebook. Twitter, I try to tweet at least a few times a day some things that are coming in and things that are going on and interact with you guys there. YouTube, I'm putting new stuff up every day. Quick announcement, I'll be doing a video today. I don't know if I'll get it finished today because it's going to be quite involved. A review of the Crossman 1377 air pistol, uh, which I think is a good thing to carry with you when you go into, uh, let's say, national parks or whatever, where you're going to go hiking where you're not allowed to carry a firearm in certain areas. Uh, I think a lot of that's been changed recently, but, you know, it's not always possible to carry a firearm wherever you go. And uh, I think this is a very renewable tool. Uh, and uh, it's pretty cool. And I actually have a stock, uh, it's just a pistol, and I have a, a bolt-on stock coming for it that I'll do in another vid video. But what I'm going to be doing today with that when I get out there is I'm going to get some water bottles, typical, you know, like water bottles you buy in a case. I'm going to fill them with some colored water, and I'm going to shoot them at different speeds so we can see the performance of the pellets. I might even go out and buy a few potatoes that are specifically for uh, sacrificing to see what kind of penetration we get on a potato. That's a pretty good analog to a squirrel. So, YouTube constantly being ramped up, so make sure you're a subscriber. Last but not least, consider joining the Member Support Brigade. Do that, you'll get exclusive content available only to members. Uh, you'll get a bunch of uh, discounts to about 20 different vendors. You'll get all kinds of cool stuff, over $100 worth of free ebooks. And more importantly, you'll be supporting this show at 20 cents an episode. Uh, if you, every time you listen to my show, you think, that was worth two dimes then consider joining the MSB. You'll get a great return of investment, but you'll help make sure that this show is always here for you. All right, and with that, let's go ahead and start talking about the main topic today, which again is uh, food storage and the holistic approach to food storage. Now, the reason I came up with kind of my view of food storage, and basically everything that I feel about food storage has been talked about by authors and speakers in the survivalist uh, world for a long time. But generally speaking, what happens is an author or a speaker or, or what have you, an expert, a trainer, tends to gravitate to one specific area. So while none of these concepts are original or anything that I've come up with individually as my own, I, the way that I've assembled them, I think, is maybe an original idea, or at least the original idea as far as being put out. And it was because I looked at all of these and I saw holes in them. I saw great wisdom and I also saw holes. Well, before we talk about this, though, let's, let's chat about the misconception that, let's say, the uninitiated or the uninformed have about survivalism and food storage. I think that, and a lot of this is based on media. The media creates this image, and then it gets grabbed onto by society of, you know, the survivalist is the guy with 10 years worth of military rations stored in a basement or a bunker stacked to the roof, and he's ready for the end of the world, he's ready for the new world order, and he's ready for the black helicopters to fly and come look to try to put a chip in his, uh, his head. He's got a black helicopter flying around in his underpants he's worried about. Tinfoil hat firmly in place. Well... Uh, as anybody who listens to this show knows, that's not what food storage is all about. If this is your first show on food storage you've listened to, um, it might be eye-opening for you, even if you already have a more open-minded view of it, uh, as to how powerful storing food really is. But my, my point is, it's not just that, that that imagery is wrong, and it's actually very damaging, and I think it's very dangerous. And I'll tell you why I think it's dangerous. I think there's a lot of people out there that could be helped by having even 30 to 60 days worth of surplus food in their home. I think it could be one of the, 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 the most important things that a family can do in the modern age. And I'm not even just talking about total catastrophe. I'm talking about dad coming home and going, everybody get together, family meeting. Daddy just lost his job. We're going to be on unemployment for a while until daddy can find a new job. Even though daddy busted his ass at work for 20 years, I didn't get anything for severance. This company just threw me out like a used Kleenex. Okay? That happens every single day. And it angers me. And I have very good friends up in New Jersey. And the wife has been trying to get the husband to leave Jersey for... Over 20 years, this guy's worked for this company. He just thought they would never get rid of me. They would never fire him. You know, and he works in IT. He's kind of a higher up in the, the, the technology field and computers and things like that. And I just got an email from her about a week ago. 
And I don't remember exactly how many years this guy had been there. I think it was well over 20. It might have been almost 30 years. And it took 20 minutes to tell him, you're gone. And I, the way she wrote the email, I got the impression that he was uh, walked from the building. She didn't directly say that. But it's very common in corporate America with a guy that has that much uh, systems access. You know, a guy that has the ability to do anything to your computer systems when he's released you take him from the building because you never know if he's going to get really mad and do something that's going to screw everything up. So that was his reward. So that, you know, there's a real world example. This happened last week to a friend of mine. Now, these people are paying over $12,000 a year in property taxes, and their house is nice, but it ain't that nice, folks. That's what Jersey is. They're finally going to get out of Jersey. They're finally going to find a new place to live and get out of there. And good for them. But when that happens to a person, and again, it happens every day. This isn't the end of the world scenario. Two to three months of food in the pantry. We don't have to go to the grocery store for a few months while we try to sort this out. That one big expense, that $200, $300 a week or more, depending on how big your family is, that people spend buying groceries, being gone, being lifted, that burden being gone, that can be the difference between a family staying together and a divorce. Most of the divorces in this country are not caused by, at least directly, infidelity, you know, or just growing tired of each other. They're caused by stress, and stress leads to people being tired of each other. Stress leads to arguments. Stress leads to infidelity. And where does that stress come from in our modern age? Money. Everything you do to alleviate that stress is not just about surviving for yourself, it's about surviving as a family. If we can't keep our families together, what are we doing, folks? So I find it when the media makes us out to be nuts for having extra food stored in our home, I find it to be a direct attack on the American family unit. Now, I don't think that the people that do it see it that way. I think this is an attack in ignorance. I don't think they know what they're doing. I think there's other places where they attack the family unit on purpose. But here, I don't even think they realize that's what they're doing because they don't think that deeply. They don't understand that deeply. All they can do is try to sell the next story. And the story of a housewife with 60 days or, or 90 days worth of food stored up in her house with a rotational pantry that feeds the kids every day and dad gets laid off for four weeks and they sell right through it because they had an emergency fund, no debt, and some food stored up, that doesn't sell newspapers. That doesn't sell magazine articles. That doesn't sell in America today because they're too stupid to know how to sell it because it sells here. Thousands of people listen to it every day because it's empowering. But our media has lost that capacity, their ability to do that. That's why alternative outlets have to do it. So I do think it's dangerous. And I do think we need to be storing food. And if society never collapses, if we never see a national level collapse of the United States economy, which I think sooner or later, maybe or maybe not in our lifetimes, but sooner or later, later we can't run an economy this way without a collapse. It's impossible. It's absolutely impossible. But if it never happens... It's still very necessary because there's a million things that can go wrong on varying levels in between those two extremes of everything super and falling off the edge of the earth. And in every instance, every day, you're going to wake up and need to eat. Before I go into the rules of food storage, here's my last thought for folks. When you think of survivalism, another thing that inevitably comes up is guns. And we need guns to defend ourselves. And what good is storing food and water and having shelter and a place to stay and, and, and having a bug out? What good is all that stuff if there's a societal collapse or even a regional collapse like Hurricane Katrina, like the L.A. riots, like Hurricane Andrew that everybody's forgotten about almost 15 years ago now in South Florida down at Homestead Air Force Base? If anything like that happens and we don't have guns and we don't have the ability to defend ourselves, what good is it? Because someone that has less will just come take it away with more force. And you're not wrong about that, but here's the other side of it. Food's more important. Okay, I've asked this question many times. I'll ask it one more time today. How many fights have you been in? Physical fights, altercations, and if you are a martial artist that spars or a boxer or an MMA fight, an actual fighter that gets in the ring and fights, take those out. Take those out. How many fights have you been in in a real world situation? Okay. Now, I'm going to even challenge you further on this today than I usually do. How many of those could have been avoided if you weren't an asshole? Because I find that people who go, I've been in plenty of fights. They're usually assholes that brought the fight on themselves. Or they never attempted de-escalation even when the other guy was the aggressor. 
right? So how many fights have you been in where you've attempted de-escalation and there was no chance for it and there had to be a fight and you had no choice? And you probably count that on one hand or less. And if it's more than one hand, you're probably, you probably at least were at the time an asshole, whether you want to admit that or not. Now, how many times have you eaten in your life from the day you were born until now? And I think most of us would take the number of days we're alive and multiply that by an average of about three plus some snacks, and that's how many times we've eaten. So, without fail, tomorrow morning you're going to wake up and have to eat. Good day, bad day. Happy, sad doesn't matter. You will need to eat. And if you go a certain number of days without eating, you fail the first rule of survival, which is you don't wake up tomorrow and continue to convert oxygen into CO2. They put you in a little box and bury you in the ground. So we know food is something we're going to require no matter what. Now, if that's the case, having a little bit around might be a good idea. I'll put it to you one more way before we go into the rules of how to do this. When I talk to people about this, they seem put off by the idea. I ask them a simple question. How far do you drive to work every day? Most people drive, you know, 20 miles or less. And I go, well, how many gallons of food, uh, how many gallons of gas does it take you to drive 20 miles round trip? And with most people, if they're not driving big trucks or whatever, they're driving typical cars, well, about a gallon. Okay, how many gallons of gas does your car hold? Uh, 14, 16, 18 gallons, if they know, right? Okay, and I'll say, well, let me ask you a question. Have you ever gone to, you know, gone to the gas station? And other than you're broke and you can just put a little bit in for a while, but you know, you could fill the tank, but you just don't. You, you go in and you get, you know, seven gallons of gas. And they say, no, I would be, I always fill it up unless I'm broke, right? Okay, fine. Why? Well, because I'm going to use it anyway and I need it and I don't know how far I might have to go before I get to fill up again. Hello? And I'll tell you what, if your tank was 30 gallons, you'd fill it up. And if it was 40 gallons, as long as you could afford it that week, you would fill it up. Why? Because you don't know when you're going to get a chance to fill up again. You don't know when you might have to go further. And filling up is a pain in the ass, right? It actually sucks. Wouldn't it be great if once a week somebody just pulled up to your house and filled your gas in your car? Hey, entrepreneurs, that might actually be a pretty cool idea. Really might. Anyway. <laughs> Especially if you bought full fuel in bulk, like Southwest Airlines. I don't know. Maybe you know, did it at oh you know just spitballing here. I'll leave it to you guys. Anyway, I have too many ideas to do them all, but um, you would fill it up because it's 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 a pain to have to go to the gas station every week or every other week, and it makes sense to have as much fuel as you possibly can. So why do you only buy enough food to make it for the next four or five days? I mean, unless you drive long distances to work, when you fill your tank, most people are buying enough fuel to last two weeks. And the only reason it's only two weeks is the tank's not any bigger. So that's why I think this just it, it's common sense to store food. So let's go into the rules now, the, these, these five holistic rules that I have. Rule one is eat what you store and store what you eat. And this is an old rule. This is something that if you go back and, and read the original edition of Making the Best of Basics by James Stevens, you'll see that as like a fundamental on it. And that original was written back in the early 70s. And this is, again, one of those things that speakers and authors have been talking about for decades with food storage, back when our biggest concern was global thermal nuclear war, right, back in the 60s and 70s. Uh, so it's an old concept, but it's still here and it's still relevant because it is the best way to start building that pantry. And there's a lot of different names for it. Ron and Karen Hood in their uh, Urban Master Survival DVD series, which is fabulous, by the way, uh, call it copy canning. And copy canning, the way they describe it, works like this. I'm going to go to the store, and this week I need to buy two cans of Wolf Chili, for instance. Well, I buy three. That's, it's just that simple. I was going to buy two, now I buy three. I go put them in the pantry, and I put them in a line and in order. And now, when I go to my pantry and I decide I'm going to make some nachos and use some wolf chili, this week I pull the can out, and I pull them forward just like they do in a grocery store, uh, or I use my Harvest 72 rack, which is also awesome. And uh, I write down on my shopping list, wolf chili, used one can. Now, when I go to the store, I used one can. What would most Americans do? Buy one. I buy two. That's it. Nothing more, nothing less, nothing complicated. I buy two, I bring them home, I put them in the back of the line uh, in my pantry. The next week, I make nachos again. It's football season, people are coming over, big old tub of nachos for all the guys to watch football. I use two cans this time. I write down, Wolf Chili, use two cans. I go to the store. You know what I do. I buy two to replace the two I used, 
and I buy one extra can. And what happens is over a few months, my pantry gets really, really deep. When I decide I have enough wolf chili, I start, you know, even though I use some wolf chili, and I, I, I just, you know, I got enough now. And I even need to let the supply come down a little bit. Maybe I start buying a, a different item. And I do that with tuna fish. I do that with beans. I do that with I do that with everything that's non uh, not likely to that doesn't need refrigeration to store. Everything that can be stored that way. So dry goods as well. Everything in the center of the grocery store, pastas, right, rice, anything like that. Instead of just buying that big giant sack of rice, which we'll get to in a minute, I look at you know well maybe I'm a person that you know does a lot of convenience cooking. So I use like the Ricerone or the Lipton or stuff like that. I think that stuff's crap, folks. But if you eat it, you eat it. I'm not going to tell you what to eat. Well, you buy two boxes instead of one. You do that for just a few months. And you get so close so fast to 30 days worth of sustainability, it's unbelievable. And you never notice the cost. Uh, let's put it this way. If, I, if, if the additional cost is, let's say, $15 a week. That's 60 bucks a month. People living on a budget, it seems like a lot of money. But if I raised your pay $15 a week, you wouldn't even notice it. You wouldn't even notice it. You would spend it so fast, you would, it would you'd just seem like your lifestyle didn't change at all. A 60 bucks was nothing. You could take the 60 bucks away and do the same thing. And it's not gone. This is the big thing. I want you to start seeing the food that you're going to eat, not the crap food you buy because you don't. You had a brain fart and you bought black-eyed peas and no one in the house eats them. I think you should. They're great. But you, no one likes them. You bought that by accident. They sit in the shelf for a, a year and then there's a food drive and you go in there and pull all that crap out and give it away. Not that stuff. The real eat what you store store where you eat stuff. Look at it like money in the bank. If this week I spend an extra $100, I don't care how much it is, and I put that in my pantry. If I took the $100 and put it in a savings account, sooner or later, I'm going to spend that $100 on food anyway. It's like buying gold and silver, only it's used in a much shorter cycle. It's not gone. It's not like buying a boat that depreciates in value. In fact, food appreciates in value over time, which we'll get to in the next rule. Eat what you store, store what you eat. I can't be more uh, specific than that because that's that's the whole thing. The big thing that you need to do: get a pad of paper, get some just some paper off the printer, get something like that, staple it together. If it's not a pad, put it on the counter in your kitchen. Every time you eat something for the next month, write down what it was. Whether you start buying it in the store or not, I don't care. Just write down the items that you use as you use them. Once you do that, you have your shopping list after a month. You'll actually be buying what you cook. All right, And then start looking for substitutes. If one of the things that you make, let's say, is chicken enchiladas. Well, storing a lot of fresh chicken is difficult, but you can store canned chicken. So start trying to build up some level of canned supplies that would replace the things that you normally use fresh. Not as much, because if you're using them fresh, your, your cycle of depleting your storage is going to go down. Okay, But then occasionally, make chicken enchiladas with that canned chicken. It actually comes out really, really well. So then start alternating between fresh and your canned items on day-to-day -day use. Keep the inventory flowing and growing. All right, Flowing and growing, that sounds like another rule we need to come up with or something. Some kind of saying. All right, the next one is rule number two, and that's taking advantage of opportunity buys. And this is something that you don't hear a lot of. In fact, James Stevens is the first place I saw it in the, uh, the prepper world, and honestly, I didn't really see it in his early editions of Making the Best of Basics. It was something that, that kind of evolved for him over time as he made newer, newer editions of the book. And if you want that book, go to my site, click on book list, and you can buy it from my site. Um, the uh, But opportunity buys have also been talked about a great deal, you know, in coupon clippings and Dollar Saver and all kinds of newsletters and all kinds of stuff that's out there that, that's not anything related to survival, you know. Clip your coupons, double coupon days, wait for items to be on sale, buy a little extra when it's on sale. They're so close, and then they just, if you talked about food stores, like, oh, whoa, 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 that's black helicopter stuff, right? So I'm not going to say too much on the basic concept of, you know, the opportunity by itself. It obviously makes sense if you use Wolf Chili and it normally sells for, a, I don't even know, a dollar thirty nine a can. 
and you go to the grocery store and it's on sale for, you know, um, six cans for $5, you buy six cans. You put them in the pantry and you start that rotation through. You figure out your total inventory on it. You see how long it comes down. You keep that inventory so you have a 30, 60, 90 day supply, whatever you know you're comfortable building up to. So that's obvious. But what's less obvious and what's more powerful is what happens when you get about a two month supply of food in your home. It's magic. It's absolute magic. You take the opportunity to buy to a new level. And housewives that are trimming budgets and thinking this is an expense, this is, you know, a lot of things are like an investment. It costs more and it takes more effort for a period of time. And then the investment starts to pay a dividend. And that dividend compounds over time and becomes more and more powerful. Okay? That's how this works. And here's what I mean by that. You eat what you store and store what you eat. You do that for a long time. And a long time, I mean 90 days, 120 days, maybe a full six months. Maybe it takes you six months to get up to uh, 45 days to 60 days of redundancy, of extra food. And then what happens one day is you go out to the store, and that wolf chili, for some reason, I don't know, somebody stubbed the toe and put one less case on the shelf or whatever. Instead of $1.19 a can, it is $1.69 a can. It's gone up in price. And you have... 15 cans of it at home. Do you know what you do that week? You don't buy it. And you don't buy it next week, and you don't buy it next week. And sooner or later, here's what's going to happen. They'll put it on sale. And then when they put it on sale, you've used up six of your 15 cans. What do you do? You buy seven or eight of them or more while they're on sale, and you build your inventory again. And you only buy items when they're on sale, when you truly have decided your inventory is depleted that you need them enough, when you have a coupon, when it's a super savior day, whatever. You only buy the items that you need as you need them. And you'll find out that since you have two months worth of food in your home, you don't ever really need them. So you put your efforts into the items that are on sale. And then what happens in that you know full year after that first six months of build up, your grocery bill goes down. It goes down a lot. It goes down a lot because you're getting everything you want. You have everything you could possibly want to cook with, but you're only buying it when it's most opportune, opportune for you to buy it. Plain and simple. Now, will there be a few items I never put on sale that just, that's how much they cost and it's a steady price and sometimes it goes up? Yep. Absolutely. That's okay because on the 80% that does go through that cycle, you take maximum advantage of it. Isn't that cool? Rule number three is where we've kind of maxed out eat what we store and store what we eat. And we have uh, also gotten to a point where we can't really bring too much more storage in because here's reality. If I have 90 days worth of eat what I store, store what I eat, so I get canned goods, box goods, dry goods, things like that, not anything in large scale, no five-gallon buckets of rice or beans, no MREs, no, no anything like that. Once I get to that 60 to 90 day period, I actually have a supply that was going to last me in my home about six months of normal day-to-day -day use because I use fresh vegetables, because I use fresh meats, right? So, and because I use fresh milk and I use all these different fresh ingredients that aren't really great storables or they're storables but they're storable in a freezer so there's only I'm only going to store so much food in a freezer because I know that if I lose power uh, for more than a week or two with some you know, backup generator even I can lose the items in the freezer so because I'm pulling all this fresh stuff in and the fresh stuff is maybe if the fresh stuff is 50% of our diet right that means that 90 days will last 6 months so once I have like a six-month rotation going on, I, I start to push food off the commercial, you know, off the, off the grocery store shelf, getting close to its expiration date. I'm not crossing it. Most of that stuff's good for a year. And if we're smart, when we go to buy those cans or, or boxes at the grocery store, we pull from the back of the shelf because we know they're doing the same thing. So we stick our arm way back in the back, and we realize that we've gained an extra three months on expiration date sometimes. But we're getting close to that. If we go much further, we're going to start pushing out to where we're going to have to either use a lot of it real quick or start donating it, which isn't bad, but it's not going to help us save money. So what do we do now? Now we have 90 days, and we want to get to six months of sustainability. Now we've got to start bringing in 
the long-term commercially prepared storables. And we're going to break those into two worlds. One we're going to call rice and beans, and I actually consider that rice, beans, pasta, and any other dry good that easily stores in bulk. So that would be also wheat and things like that. These are the things that we put together ourselves. So we go out, we buy 50 pounds of wheat berries, we pack them into five-gallon buckets in a Mylar container uh, with O2 absorbers, and we put that away, and we have 50 pounds of wheat. We need for a long time on 50 pounds of wheat. Whole wheat that we grind up ourselves, highly nutritious, good protein source, uh, absolutely outstanding. Uh, white flour is crap when it comes right down to it. It makes some good tasting stuff, but nutritionally it's crap whole wheat, fresh ground flour, and that wheat can last 20 years easy. Stored the way I just described. No problem. So that's one world. So we have, you know, we, maybe we do that with 50 pounds of rice, 50 pounds of beans, 50 pounds of wheat, and 50 pounds of pasta. Right? We just put four buckets away. 200 pounds of dry good foods. Uh, it's really not going to go in four buckets, so you're going to be at about, you're going to use about 12 buckets to store what I just described. Maybe a little bit more, actually. Maybe 14, depending on the type of pasta, the size of rice, and, and all these other things, and exactly how you store them. But you put that away. You do a caloric count, you figure out how long that's going to actually supply nutrients and, and food for the household. Couple that with the 90-day pantry, and man, you've got some, some stuff going on. But then we want variety in our lives. We want ease of preparation. Uh, we're now in a harsh reality of a real survival situation. The United States economy has collapsed. It has gotten that bad. Or more likely, I guess not really more likely, but more accepted by society is something that could occur. There's a huge pandemic, a big, nasty global pandemic, a pandemic that has an infection rate of uh, 70%. That means that 7 out of 10 people exposed to it contract the illness. has a death rate of about 10%. Literally, hundreds of millions of people die throughout the world. Tens of millions in the United States. Systems are shut down. Quarantine is in effect. Only the biggest Pollyanna in the world would ever be stupid enough. And I, I very seldomly call somebody stupid. But you have to be stupid to believe that that can't happen. If you understand the least bit about how viruses and microbes and bacteria and all of the other things that can make us ill mutate and are communicable and how that something as simple as the flu can mutate a million times in a year if we really look at it at that, at that level. And then all it needs is one good day. One good day for the virus is one bad day for humanity so that has happened so we are in this difficult situation and we are confined to our homes having food that can be prepared in an instant is a good idea and when we've gotten through what we store through what we eat grinding uh, grain to make bread can be tough and not something we wouldn't do and maybe we actually need the activity to keep from going nuts since we're stuck in a quarantine environment but also being able to, when everybody's not, especially if somebody's sick, and maybe not even with the disease, but they're just not feeling good, or it's just a tough day, being able to pop open a can and make something quickly available is really good. So now is where we start adding things like the Mountain House, providing pantry, the number 10 cans, commercially prepared storables, and yes, military rations like MREs, especially the bigger military rations like what they call T-rats or tray rations. Um, when we do that, we bring this new longevity into our storage. We bring convenience, easy preparation, full nutritional profile, fat, uh, fat protein, and uh, carbohydrates all together in one place. And we bring storage lives of 10 to 20 years. So now we can bring in two to three months of that storability into our pantry. And now we're looking at six months, seven months worth of sustainability. And it's good food. And this is why I want you to make sure you do something for me. Never buy a case of anything without buying one can, bring it home, crack the sucker open and try it. You know, before you buy a case of pork chops, buy them, rehydrate them, throw them with some barbecue sauce on the grill. Make sure your family eats that. If they do, then stock up on it. When we do that, and we do it that way, we don't just buy a pallet of random crap that somebody at the factory decided was a good profile for us. When we take the same approach to building up the commercial storable, that we do to building up the evil we store, store what we eat. We're actually commercially storing what we eat. So if we hate pork chops, we're not going to buy pork chops. If we like shrimp, we're going to buy shrimp. If we don't like peas, we're not going to buy uh, a 10-year supply of peas. She's not going to do it. 
If we don't like a certain kind of bean, we're not going to put those into our five, you know, the stuff we create ourselves. We're not going to put it into that five-gallon bucket. If we don't like whole wheat bread, we're not going to store 50 pounds of grain. We'll find something else. Trust me, no matter what you eat, no matter what you like, there's an ability for you to get this kind of sustainability with only things you'll actually eat. So now, what have we got when we have six to seven months worth of food stored in our homes? Taking up some space that used to be maybe used for some junk and clutter we've had to get rid of, and it's cost us some money, but now it's there. Now maintaining it is cheap, because all we do is, you know, we use the can, we replace the can. We open a can, we replace the can. We don't have to buy extra anymore if we're happy with six to seven months. Maybe we want to get to a year and we just coast on through We're doing what we're doing until we get to a year. But whenever we get to our baseline, whatever we're comfortable with, we have the six months, it costs absolutely nothing to maintain. Because all we do is buy what we use as we use it. Just like we, just like everybody else in America does anyway. But now, dad comes home. Um, family meeting. Bastards fired me. No severance, no nothing. I'm, you know, on unemployment. 20 years in the salt mines for nothing. But, food's on the table for the next seven months. How much stress is taken away from that family? How much more likely is that family unit to survive? How much, how less likely are they to have to rely on uh, the acts of charity to carry them through? How much more calm and rational is Dad going to be when he goes out and interviews for a job? How much less likely is he going to be to take some crap job that sucks? Especially if at the same time we were putting some money into the savings account. Not just into the retirement savings, but into the savings account that we might need. See, a year of this process coupled with a year of saving some money, and folks, the money's there if you look for it, and all of a sudden Dad goes, you know, I can do 90 days of this, you know, like a cakewalk. It's just not a problem. So Dad goes out. And takes the job loss as what it should have been. Or mom goes out and takes the job loss as what it should have been. The greatest opportunity that they've ever been handed in life. Because odds are, if they got canned like that, they really didn't love what they were doing anyway. And they've wanted to do something else. And maybe this is now the opportunity. See, if we live life, not just food stores, but if we live our lives the way that I talk about every day on this show, people, when they, got it, when they lost a job, would go out with a group of friends and drink a couple beers, and not in sorrow, but in celebration. And they would look forward in their lives with huge opportunity. But because we've been lulled into a place where we live on credit cards, we buy what we eat day to day, week to week, and that's as far as we go, we don't even take the same concepts into our home we do with our gas tanks. All of our savings goes into retirement where we have to pay ungodly penalties to get at our own money if we ever need them in emergencies. We're spending more than we make on a daily basis. We're house poor. We're car poor. Because we live that way, job losses are disasters. So I'm saying if you live this way and make food storage part of it, it, it's not about you'll never lose your job. It just won't be a disaster anymore. Isn't that cool? So the commercially prepared storables are how you get there. One caution. The rice, the beans, the pasta, the things that we can put together in the buckets ourselves, dirt cheap. 50 pounds of wheat is dirt cheap. 50 pounds of pinto beans, dirt cheap. 50 pounds of rice, dirt cheap. When you really look at it, dirt cheap. So here's what can happen. Go overboard on it and buy way more than you'll ever use. When you do that, you create problems for yourself. I'm becoming a bigger fan instead of the five-gallon bucket of the one-gallon, half-gallon, one-pint, what-have-you paint can that's food-grade. And I know they seem expensive, but like most quality items, they're expensive once. Because what this allows me to do is now I go out and buy 50 pounds of rice. And I put it into, I don't know, however many half gallons. And I haven't done this with rice yet, so I'm not sure. And I have so much of it stored up, I don't know that I will. Unless I take it out of its storage. And this is a better way. And I put it into these half gallon paint cans. And I stack that all somewhere. And I label it and I date it. When I run out of rice for my day-to-day use, I go take a can out. Right? I pop the can open. I put the rice into, uh, let's say, one of those little canisters like we keep in our pantry for rice that's going to be used short-term, day-to-day. Now, I buy from the grocery store, instead of another 50-pound bag, I buy enough rice to fill that can. I fill that can, I stick an O2 absorber in it. I hit it with a rubber mallet and seal it. I label it and date it. I stick it at the back of the pile. Now that huge amount of rice stored is actually being rotated and used. And it'll last 20 years stored the way I just described. But the can 
is not to be seen as a one-time expense and a one-time use. Because I can open the can and close the can a hundred times. So that can is like buying a house. But it's a house for my food instead of a house for me. It's an investment. And the food is the consumable commodity. So unlike the number 10 can that I buy from Mountain House, which I'm not knocking because they make some great products, uh, providing pantry, yoders, all these guys do. But when I open that can, or I open the can from the grocery store, the cost of the food that was the can, the manufacturer passed on to me, is disposable. I open that can, unless I'm using it for some kind of a project or something, it's not really good for storing food in anymore. Right? So I throw it away. Right? Or I make some kind of random crap out of it, a hobo stove or whatever. But it's not a food storage container anymore. That gold-lined, phenolically lined food-grade, FDA-approved paint can, I pop the top, put food in, restore. So I'm becoming a big fan of that. Um, and if you watch my video on storing zucchini that was harvested from the garden, you'll see those cans and exactly what I'm talking about. I'll put a link to that today in today's uh, show notes. So be careful with the wheat, the rice, the beans. Because what happens is um, we end up taking up a lot of space that can be used for things that are more practical. Uh, but if you do what I just described, I'll tell you what, it's kind of a new way to look at this. And maybe I'll put together a series on that as well. The next one is, and this is probably the most important one, and that's becoming a producer. And I break becoming a producer up into two worlds. Actually, three. I, I break it up into the world of becoming a producer by utilizing what's available in the wild, so to speak. And it may not be the great wilds, the wilderness, because it might be a little pond that's uh, at a park in your neighborhood that you can catch bluegills out of. It might be the side of the highway where blackberries grow, right? It, it could be anything like that, where you can go forage for berries, nuts, Fruits, anything that grows without you, you know, without having to be on your land and without having you to put any inputs into it. Hunting, squirrels, rabbits, deer, anything like that. Um, and fishing. So any kind of fishing you can do. So any of those things that allow you to go out and take part in an activity, uh, that becomes a hobby or a pastime or even a necessity for you and bring food back with you, that's one type of production. The second type of production uh, is the other type of what I call, these are two methods of direct production. The second direct production method is to go out in your backyard and build that garden. And that pepper plant that produces, that one plant that produces 100 jalapenos, some are eaten fresh, some are stored, what have you, that is now another method of direct production. The cherry tree in your backyard that you planted, that you picked the cherries off of, you had to put it there. So it, it's different than the direct production that's out of your control. Because here's the issue. As long as you can defend your property and stay in your house, you know the cherry tree is accessible and you know it will produce with some regularity every single season. You know when the production will begin and when it will end. The same with your garden. The same with the kiwi vine that's growing on your fence. The same with the grapevine that's growing out front on an arbor. All of those things are under your direct control. They are more reliable, but they require more effort because you have to maintain and take care and plant and care for them, water them and things, right? But you cannot rely on the fact that you'll always be able to go out and bring home a limit of six squirrels because shit hit the fan, everybody turns to that, okay? Uh, you can't always rely on being able to go fishing. I cut out early. I went fishing yesterday. The wind came up. It was like being on the ocean in this little lake. Uh, didn't catch anything. With my little boat, just couldn't handle the, the... I shouldn't even have been out there, honestly. Right? So things happen in those things that are outside of your control with that type of direct production. The things on your own property that you control can always be relied upon. That said, if you create enough diversity in your foraging, hunting, gathering, there's always something you... Uh, if, I, if I needed food yesterday, if I absolutely needed to go gather food yesterday, I wouldn't have went fishing. Or if I did, I would have went to a different location where I didn't need my boat and it was sheltered from the wind. Right? I could have got food, but I couldn't go out and fill up a boat with 25 white bass, which is very typical for me to be able to. So you see what I'm saying? Those direct production methods you can't always rely on, but it's good to know them. And if you don't fish and you don't hunt, there's still things you can do. Again, I know parks in Arlington where there's huge pecan trees, and every year, Hundreds and thousands of pecans fall to the ground and are eaten by squirrels and or rot. And no one gives a damn. And just by knowing the location of these things, I can go out and forage them. Now, shit hits the fan bad enough and everybody's hungry, that resource will curtail. But for now, it's there. It's available. Does that make sense? hope so.
All right, now, the other side of being a producer is almost more important, and that is indirect production. Indirect production is where one method would be combining direct and indirect. I grow a whole crap load of rattlesnake pole beans, and I, I'm planting a bunch of them for a second succession of them uh, out of my garden today. Maybe I'll video that for you guys as well. And I plant a crap ton of those, way more than I could ever possibly use. Now, as they come uh, into production, I start picking them and using what I can. The surplus I do the following with. I pick some when they're young and tender and use it as a snap bean. Uh, and I can or dehydrate them. I allow some of them to go to full maturity to become a shelling bean, and I shell them. When I buy a shelling bean, is when you go to the store and you buy a bag of beans, you soak in water, that's a shelled bean. So I let half of the production go to that level, and I shell them and dry them out, and I put them in my paint cans with my O2 absorbers. Okay? Now, I've taken direct production, growing the bean, and I've gone into an indirect production where I'm producing the storable. I'm converting the fresh item into a storable, and I'm producing a storable. If I pickle, if I smoke, if I make biltong out of meat, in any of those instances, I'm converting fresh into a storable, and I'm producing the storable. Instead of paying Mountain House to freeze-dry my pork chop, I'm taking beef, and I'm turning it into biltong or beef jerky. Instead of paying Mountain House or providing pantry to freeze-dry my green beans, I'm putting them in my Excalibur dehydrator, and I'm dehydrating them myself, which is going to give me just as good of a storage capacity with a green bean. Instead of going to the store and buying a great big sack of beans to put into my cans, I'm simply letting them mature a little bit longer on the vine. I'm, take, I'm doing the labor of shelling them myself. I'm dropping them into the cans, and I'm creating the storage. Now I can start adding all of the things together. For instance, and this is where I go into rule number five, which is that holistic solution. You take all of these things and the subfaces of them that I've given you, and you combine them together to build a full program. So it's not just about store we eat, it's not just about MREs, it's not just about a garden, it's not just about hunting and fishing, it's not just about foraging, it's not just about dehydrating, it's not just about canning, it's about all of those things together. And we build this super system, this massively redundant super system, and all that is, folks, all it is, is 1900 America. Everything I've just described to you, with the exception of the freeze-dried cans, Right, with the exception of the mountain house, the providing pantry, and things like that, where somebody else did that for you, everything else is something any housewife, any husband, any teenager in America in 1900 would have been familiar with and practiced without anybody telling them before there was a podcast. This is how we lived. This is the self-reliant nation that withstood a war where we killed each other. We call that the Civil War. This is a nation that when we were attacked by the nation we got our freedom from, just 20 years after we got our freedom, in 1812, this is a nation that withstood that attack. That's self-reliance. This is a nation that when we came under the greatest threat that we've ever endured as a nation in World War II, we stood through it. And the threat to America was more than the battlefield in World War II. It was, can you hang? Because we were also in the middle of a Great Depression. One that was orchestrated and created, but we were still in it. That was the America that stood up and said, no, no, no. We will not go down. We will not go down without a fight. We are here. We will stay. And I ask you, do our people have that in them today? And I know a lot of you are shaking your head saying no. I'm going to tell you you're dead wrong. Yes, we do. It's been dumbed down, it's been numbed, it's been screwed up, and we've been lied to about it, and we've been pacified, and we've been made dependent. But if it wasn't still here, if it wasn't still real, 14,000, 15,000 of you wouldn't listen to this show every day. It's in pockets of America all over the place. And I know you're thinking, well, someplace like where I live, it's here, but it's not. Bullshit. Because there's people that listen in Dallas, New York City, Tallahassee, Sanford, frickin' Cisco. It's everywhere. Because it's genetic. Because it's not American, folks. It's human. It's human. It's why the squirrel doesn't eat every frickin' nut each fall. And why he puts them away. No one tells him to do that. There's no podcast for squirrels. If there was, they'd say, Stu, stay away from Jack's bird feeder. He's going to shoot your ass in November and eat you. And he'd know not to come here. 
right? But instead, I get to look at them and admire them as free livestock for the next few months. Squirrel knows to store. The ant knows to store. Do you know how many creatures know to store? Only grasshoppers live for today and don't think about tomorrow. We've been lulled into a place where the American person, the American citizen, the modern, hell with America, the modern citizen, the global citizen, in any kind of uh, what they call an advanced society, has been tricked into believing you're a grasshopper. You've been told it's okay. Big Brother will take it. If it breaks, we'll fix it. You should be self-reliant for three... That's our government's advice to you. Have three days worth of food in the house. Three days! Everybody already has three days. It's a nonsensical statement. It's like telling people to make sure there's a roof on your house. No shit! Really? Make sure I have a roof. Let me check. Okay, it's there. Right? And hey, if there's a hole in it, it's leaking, either fix it or get somebody to do it. Really? Because I would have never figured that out without government's advice. So the government telling the average person to have three days worth of food in their home is just stupid. Now, I guess there's the, what they call the kitchenistas as I talked about a while ago in New York City that keep no food in their home and store their clothes in the refrigerator and their stoves. So there's a small segment. But you don't think that the average American home has three days worth of food? Come on. That is putting people to sleep. But it doesn't have to be that way. We can be 1900 America again. We can be 1880 America again. And we don't have to change the nation. We have to change who we are and what we do and how we practice these things. And every time you pick up that one extra can and put it in your pantry, you're getting a little bit closer to the wisdom of your roots. Every time that you go out in that backyard and go, holy crap, look at all the peppers this year. And you take some in and make a salad, you take some and wrap some bacon around, throw them on the grill, and you take the surplus and you chop them up and throw them in that dehydrator. Put them in a can and store them and use them for cooking an omelet six months from now when there are no fresh peppers. You're reconnecting. Every time you get a, a letter in the mail that says, Dear Sucker, Dear Sucker, you've been pre-approved for $25,000 worth of credit from Sucker's Credit Card R Us MasterCard Inc., and you walk over to your shredder and you go, and you shred it, and you go, damn, shredder's full. Excellent. I and you think, man, I hope they keep sending me these things. You take the top off the shredder and you walk out to your compost bin and you throw all those shredders in the compost bin and give it a stir. And you think, you know, it's great that these suckers sent me their wood fiber for free. You're reconnecting to that wisdom. Because I'll tell you what, your grandmother would have done it. If in 1940... Your grandmother would have got a letter in the mail from some company called MasterCard. They didn't exist yet. And said, Dear Grandma, we have determined that you are an upstanding citizen and you are entitled to $10,000 worth of credit. Please use this card at your discretion. Make a simple phone call to us. You know, it didn't even have an area code back then probably. And we will turn your card on. You can go to any store, anywhere, and use this just like cash. We'll send you a bill for it every month and we know you're good for it. She would have thrown it on the compost pile. And she would have told all her friends, you know what? I don't know who this MasterCard company is, but these guys are idiots. They think that they can give me $10,000 to blow, and I'll be able to pay it back. What a bunch of idiots. Every time you take the same step, you're reconnecting to that wisdom. See, there's a lot of great things that modern society has brought us. Technology. Communications. A really badass, no matter what they say about our electrical grid, it's pretty cool. The fact that anywhere in America today, that with a little bit of effort, you can put in a structure, flip a light, and a bulb comes on and lights up the house. You turn a little dial on the wall and set the temperature to be lower or higher. That's pretty freaking amazing. People in 1850 would never even have understood or conceived of this. You know, they would have been like, there's a story I heard from a preacher one time. And he said there was this old codger lived up in the mountains, you know, and he kind of missed the whole electricity thing, didn't even know that it was available. And uh, he only came into town once in a while at a general store. And he goes into a general store one day, and the general store has just installed electricity in an air conditioner. And he sees the guy at the store walk over, and it's, he says, it's a bit hot in here, ain't it? And he turns the lever down a little bit. And all of a sudden he hears, and the thing cools off. Well, he goes back up to his little hidey hut, and he's up there sweating his butt off. And one day he decides, you know what, next time I go into town, I'll get me one of them things. So he goes back down into town with his mule, and he goes in there, and he buys 
that little uh, thermostat thing, right? Doesn't buy an air conditioner, doesn't get electricity. He just buys a little box the guy had on the wall. The guy sells it to him, has no idea what he's going to do with it. He takes it back to his shack, he nails that sucker up on the wall, and turns it down to 65 degrees. You know what he's thinking, right? It doesn't work. See, it's not about the thermostat, it's about all the stuff that makes it run. I'm not saying we shun technology. I'm just saying we don't become 100% dependent upon it. We have plans for what to do when it fails. And God forbid we don't become dependent on the systems of debt and the systems of employment that have been used to enslave the society. There was correspondence that went on between a member of Abraham Lincoln's cabinet that was a southern sympathizer and a, a member of the British Parliament during the war between the states, the Civil War, if you want to call it that. I don't like calling it the Civil War. I call it the war between the states. And... Um, the question was basically posed from this this, uh, this this southern sympathizer that was in Lincoln's cabinet that I think Lincoln didn't really know about, or maybe he did, who knows. Let's not go into conspiracy theories. But the conversation is documented. It basically went along the lines of, what will happen to the economy of our nation uh, when we win this? Because by then they had pretty much figured out they were going to win. And the, the guy from Britain said, don't worry about it. When you enslave a person, truly enslave them, you have to provide their food, their housing, their care. If you financially enslave a society, they have to provide their own food, housing, and care. It's a much better way to enslave a society. And you know what? That's where we are today. From 1850 till now, that's what we've done. We've enslaved a society. We've enslaved it with debt, and we've enslaved it with dependence. And it all stems from a human. And how does this all tie back into food storage that I was talking about, folks? It all ties back together because here's the, the reality. We have two cliches that you always hear the working man say when it comes to doing a job he hates. I've got to put food on a table and keep a roof over our head. Right? Well, if you get out of debt, keeping the roof over the head isn't that hard. And if you store the food up, keeping it on the table isn't that hard. And as soon as we do that, we break the chains. See, if we take two concepts, just two concepts alone from modern survivalism, having a reserve food supply and keeping our debt low, just those two, that's it. You look at the chains that bind you, that make you work the job you hate, that make you live in fear, that make you spend the money in the first place you don't have. Why do you think you use the credit card? Because you don't believe you can have the freedom. So you're trying to decorate your freaking cell. That's what America does today. We live in freaking jail cells. We just call them cubicles and cars and suburbia. We just move between ourselves. We wake up in our cell in suburbia. We get in our prison that's our metal car. We drive that sucker down to our work. We get in our cell that's called our cubicle or our place in the assembly line. Or we go out on gang labor and dig holes in the ground. Whatever it is, unless you want to do it, it's prison. Because I actually liked when I worked in construction. I enjoyed digging holes. I really did, believe it or not. So that wasn't a prison for me. But if you're doing it and you hate it, it's a prison. If you sit in a cubicle every day and type a bunch of bullshit into a computer you don't even believe, it's a prison. If you answer a phone every day for a company that you know screws over its employees and you know screws over its customers, and you provide customer service for that company, you don't really want to be there, but they pay you every you're in a prison cell. That's how most of America lives. And if you look, there's virtual chains. You walk into your home, you're chained to your house. It's called a mortgage. You get in your car, you're chained to your car. It's called a payment. You go into your office, you're chained to your cubicle, or your workstation, or whatever it is, and it's called a need for income. And as soon as you get rid of the debt, and you store food, you look at those chains, and they just crumble they just crumble they're gone they're not there anymore and they're never coming back because I'll tell you one thing you want to see a person fight for, for, for freedom take a slave remove their chains call them a free man and let someone go try to take that human back into the bonds of slavery once they've tasted freedom they'll die before they go back are they gonna bail you out that spirit still in America. That spirit lives around the world. Wherever you are listening to me, find it. Live the example. Be the revolution. This has been Jack Spirico, another edition of Survival Podcast. Help you figure out how to live that better life. Times are tough. There's a better way to do this.
Nobody up there cares.